It's Thursday, October 2nd, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Greg McLeod, Assistant Professor in the Department of Physiology at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center. Thank you for being here, Greg. Thank you. Around the room, we've got Fidel Santa Maria. Hello. Charlie Wilson. Hi. Carlos Palladini. Hi there. And me, I'm Selma Karashi. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Greg, the role of mitochondria in calcium-mediated cell signaling seems to have been um, a little uneven over the decade. In the early days, it seems like they were considered the major internal reservoir for calcium and for its homeostasis. Then later, the ER seemed to take over this role, and the mitochondrial calcium pool seemed only to come up in terms of excitotoxicity. Looking through the recent citations, it seems that there's been a renaissance in thinking about mitochondria and presynaptic calcium signaling. How do you explain this? Or is it even true? I think it is true. I think there's been a real bloom in um, mitochondrial research. I think a lot of attention is being paid to it now specifically because um, of its, well, of its role in neurodegenerative disease, or at least its association with neurodegenerative disease. Most uh, of these diseases have some component of their pathology um, involving mitochondria. And even if the um, mitochondrion isn't at the uh, pathogenesis. It's certainly part of the pathology, usually. Mm-hmm. In, in your work, you uh, look at how mitochondria regulate presynaptic calcium concentrations. Could you maybe enumerate briefly some of the ways that mitochondria influence neurotransmitter release? So there's a lot of potential ways in which mitochondria can uh, influence neurotransmitter release. And I say potential because... Um, Although we know the mitochondrion does certain things, um, and these have the potential to influence neurotransmission, a lot of the potential uh, for change hasn't been actually uh, measured. For instance, mitochondria are the principal source of ATP in a uh, neuron, in which case we know that uh, vesicle cycling is uh, ATP dependent, so instantly there's a reason why a mitochondrion could influence neurotransmission. Uh, mitochondria take up and release calcium. Again, we know that uh, neurotransmitter release has a fourth power dependence on calcium, so anything that happens in the cell regarding um, sequestration or release of calcium has the potential to uh, influence neurotransmission. And possibly uh, one of the most recent uh, findings uh, I know about um, involving another function of the mitochondria, and that is the production of reactive oxygen species, uh, that can influence uh, the KCNQ channels and uh, affect excitability of the neuron. So, again, there is another way for mitochondria to potentially influence neurotransmission. Carlos? Yeah. Yeah, so that's very interesting because it seems like the mitochondria kind of just do almost everything. So when you say they, they um, involve in reactive oxygen species, they do... Um, they, they take care of calcium uptake and release. And so yeah. how, how when you study mitochondria, how do you separate all these issues? Because it seems like if you block the uptake of calcium to look at how mitochondria influence calcium dynamics, you also block the its ability to create ATP and you may just kill the cell. Yeah, that's a terrific question. And that's, that's the problem with having an interventionist's approach or an occlusion experiment to try and determine what the answer is. So... And that's one of the advantages to working in the model system that we're working in at the moment. That is uh, Drosophila, where you can make all these um, transgenic tools. Mm-hmm. So in the first instance, what we want to do is uh, measure each of these function- functions 
in the wild type conditions. So we want to be able to measure the level of calcium in the mitochondria, the measure uh, the amount of calcium in the cytosol. We'd like to be able to measure the amount of ATP in the cytosol that the mitochondrion generates. And also you can uh, measure, say, the concentration of hydrogen peroxide in the cytosol. And I think even recently a paper came out um, in Cell where they've uh, engineered a form of yellow fluorescent protein to detect the superoxide levels within the matrix of the mitochondrion. So um, hypothesis testing is great using an interventionist approach, but at this, uh, at this stage, I guess our laboratory is just focusing on the tools that allow us to make measurements of the various um, aspects of mitochondrial function, and you're right, it's very tough to, diff, uh, to actually be able to separate them. Yeah. So, Sorry. speaking of those tools, it's an amazing, incredible set of yeah. tools that uh, you want to measure calcium. You just put in a, a gene that makes a calcium yeah. indicator for you, and then you want something else in the same cell, you do that in the same cell. How, uh, I know that that Drosophila are specially suited to this kind of work, but is what is this that's so special about Drosophila that makes it possible to do that? And can we can we steal that and <laughs> use it somehow? Well, I'm it? sure you can steal some of it. Um, I mean, the the advantage with Drosophila, and um, I suspect that C. elegans is perhaps one of the few model organisms where they can do it better. That is, there's a very short generation time. So um, as far as breeding programs go, you have very short breeding programs. Uh, but some of the uh, technology that you use to make uh, these reporters is an older technology involving cDNA, involving um, stable uh, transfection of animals with uh, a construct which will um, allow you to express a specific reporter in a specific cell type. Um, targeted to a specific organelle, such as targeted to the endoplasmic reticulum or targeted to the mitochondrion. Um, and sure, you can partake of it, you know, that sort of technology in, uh, in a vertebrate, uh, I suspect a vertebrate slice preparation, if you're able to keep it long enough to be able to transfect it with some of these um, cDNA constructs so that your cell can be, um, I guess, recruited to make the protein that you're interested in. And to engineer it into a mouse the way you do is also possible. It would just take really a long time that's, because that's you right, have to yeah. breed lots of mice to do it. That's right. So it's very cheap to be able to do it in Drosophila. For example, if we want to put the cDNA for the uh, yellow fluorescent protein that reports superoxide levels in mitochondria, it might take us, let's say, uh, four or $500 to actually make the plasmid that contains the cDNA it would cost us then, let's see if we did it outside the laboratory, possibly two to $250 to inject, let's say, 150 to 200 embryos with that uh, uh, construct that was going to um, cause stable germline transformation. And then we would just need a bit of labour in the laboratory for the next couple of weeks on and off to uh, map the site of um, the... Site of the uh, cDNA insert into the genome and to be able to balance it so that we don't lose that with um, consecutive uh, generations after that. So all up, you're talking about some uh, transgenic animal that could probably be made on a budget under $1,000 for each one that you want to make. 
And you can't do that in mice. It's a lot more expensive. And the, and the time, right? I mean, your, your description the says it's like a, like a couple of months you get a line. Sure. So if I had a construct that I wanted to um, use uh, something that's obviously genetically uh, encoded, I from this moment onwards, it would take possibly two months before I might have a transgenic animal which was available where I could express that protein in the tissue of, of my choosing. Wow. And then the combinations are caused just by breeding those sure. uh, animals once you've got them. So, so you're right. So um, I could take this reporter for the superoxide levels in mitochondria. I could cross that with an animal where I had a reporter for calcium in the cytosol of that neuron. And I could also cross in a reporter to tell me the location of the active zones within those neurons. So as long as I can separate um, those proteins by their spectra, then I can use all three of those reporters in the same animal and get that information out very quickly from a live preparation. And the important thing here is that we're talking about an acutely dissected preparation which has all those reporters in place and ready to go for you to make measurements of whatever you're interested in as far as um, neurobiology, neuroscience function, yeah. So is, is, is there any additional reason other than price and, and um, generation time? Because uh, it's my impression that there's a lot of uh, genetic mutants in mice, but almost none in, in rats. And I, would have, I don't know too much about genetics, but I, I think that their generation times are somewhat equivalent and that the price of the technology would be about the same in both species, yet uh, for some reason we just don't have any rat mutants of almost anything. Yeah, I, I think it is more expensive to do it in rats. I think the technology is a little bit different and I mean I'm not the person to be answering that sort of question but I can relate it back to Drosophila and why might we want to do something in Drosophila? Well there are drawbacks to doing it in Drosophila and that is that you're not going to find this exactly the same protein. It, it will have changed uh, there's only a certain degree of, of conservation. But there are other advantages in Drosophila, which you might anticipate, is that if you're interested in looking at something like a presynaptic calcium channel, uh, a high-voltage activated one, um, you might have, well, a number of different channels in vertebrates. But in Drosophila, you might have only a single presynaptic calcium channel. So... I think they've found in mice that if you knock out one of these presynaptic calcium channels, you end up with uh, a certain compensation. So you have functional redu redundancies uh, in vertebrates, which you don't have in Drosophila. Mm -hmm. So if you're going for a clean test of a hypothesis where it involves the function of presynaptic calcium channels, you can do it with just one mutation or one transgene. And the same goes for things like... Uh, different classes of ryanodine receptors, there's only one in Drosophila. IP3 receptors, again, there's only one, whereas there's multiple um, genes that code for these things in vertebrates. So it's a simpler system, but it's <clears throat> and that's great, but it, it's, it's not quite the same as doing experiments in vertebrates. My, my understanding is that um, the probability of impregnating these animals decreases uh, from mice to rats. So like with, um, with flies, you inject this um, uh, the egg, right? right? 
And then from the 200 you inject, maybe, I don't know, 180 will become flies. You'll get a good proportion. Yeah, and then you, you get a many of them. From in, in mice, it's lower. I don't know the number, but in rats, it's even lower. And the same is true like in cats and, and dogs. I mean, these people that are trying to clone cats and dogs, that's why they start with the cat because the probability of, like, of surviving yeah. is higher than with a dog. And a dog is like 1 in 200. They have mm-hmm. to impregnate, do the, the whatever you do, the manipulation, and you try to do it 200 times. That's the, what I remember. There was like a review in science like a couple of years ago. And is it goes a, lower and lower. Yeah. Is, I wonder, does that uh, have anything to do with um, evolutionary development? Apparently. Or? Apparently it has to do with uh, with that. That's, I mean, here's a confession of biologists talking. <laughs> then, there, yeah. then there's this, this insertion and stability of that insertion, right? That's right. So sometimes the gene could get kicked out right. and you just lose it. And then you mentioned, find out sort of where it's been inserted. Why is it important to know where? Well, it's important to know where, first of all, so that you can actually balance it. So you want to have that particular chromosome opposite um, another chromosome arm, which has been balanced so that you can prevent recombination with each successive generation. Because with each successive generation, if you haven't balanced it, there's an opportunity for it to recombine of the chromosome, which you may have, may or may not have marked. So you want to know where it is and you want to have balanced it. And that's very easy in Drosophila. Drosophila, you only have an X chromosome, second chromosome, third chromosome, and the fourth chromosome, which is very small and really not used at all. So we're talking about three main chromosomes here compared to however many in higher vertebrates. So it's it's much easier to do your bookkeeping. So I guess not to get too much into the technical aspects, but it seems that what is stopping you to in 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 transfecting a fly with ten different reporters is the overlap of in the fluorescent expect in the expect spectrum yeah, for sure uh, that is so broad, right? I mean, if yeah. we had like more narrow band banded um, report fluorescent uh, reporters, you could like potentially sure. increase this by two or three times. Right? And those reporters are coming up. I mean, you can potentially separate up to 10 or 12 just about um, going from the uh, near UV up to the end of the visible spectrum. And in some of these experiments I'm doing at the moment, um, I'm using cyan fluorescence for the mitochondria, green fluorescence for the active zone. Then there's a red reporter of calcium dynamics, which is the rod dextrin, and then finally you have AF647, which is right at the end of the visible spectrum, or perhaps mm. even past it, which shows me exactly where the cytosol is, because the fluorescent cytosolic calcium reporter isn't visible for me to allow focusing when it's not being stimulated. So sure, you can, as, as many wavelengths as you can separate, you can potentially use as a reporter of either function or um, location in, in these neurons. So I wanted to get back to uh, mitochondria and their role in the calcium homeostasis, yeah. just more generally. Um, so we know that sodium ion from voltage-gated channels can elicit calcium released from mitochondria during PTP, post-tetanic uh-huh, potentiation. Sure. What are the other signaling molecules that we know affect mitochondrial activity? For example, how much do we know about um, mitochondrial modulation via second messengers? Well, 
I don't know a lot about that. I mean, um, you have a nice second messenger system which activates uh, calcium release from the endoplasmic reticulum, but I don't know of any particular uh, messengers which are specifically responsible for releasing calcium from the mitochondria. Um, I mean, the mitochondrion is a, a terrifically complex organelle, and it uh, it engages in lots of functions. But some of some of the signalling molecules to it, you know, I don't know so much about that. I mean, there is a lot of interaction when you come to uh, the metabolic function of mitochondria, many signals there. But as far as calcium signalling, you're right. It's um, sodium exchange is responsible for uh, calcium coming out of the mitochondrion. Whether or not there's any particular signal that uh, triggers the release of calcium from the mitochondria, no, that I draw a blank on that. Do we know how constant? I mean, everybody's interested in the non-ATP functions of mitochondria, but the ATP synthesis function is, in some sense, primary for sure. mitochondria, and the the way we normally think about ATP is that it's pretty much constant. When the cell needs some, it's, there's either some there or not. But in all of these reactions, ATP or ADP, which uh, end up being a substrate, mm -hmm. and uh, usually in reactions like that, concentrations of substrates help to drive the speed of reactions. So if, if ATP is fluctuating around, then all yeah. of those things are fluctuating around. Does it ATP stay constant, or is it really So no, changing? ATP doesn't stay constant. The ATP to ATDP ratio is supposed to stay at a fairly fairly fixed level, but, but we do know from some studies, specifically those which look at um, ATP-dependent potassium channels in membranes, that if you use their conductivity to assay ATP levels, then we know straight away that um, they fluctuate uh, quite a lot. Um, and I can remember some of the measurements from those uh, experiments ranging from something like, in this case, 10 micromolar or something up to around 100 micromolar. And okay, so that's uh, probably an in vitro experiment, but I don't think it's, it's true that uh, ATP levels are constant. I think they are probably quite variable. But until we have the capacity to measure them in, in nerve terminals, and that's one of the things that our laboratory is trying hard to do at the moment, um, we just don't know. We need to be able to measure that. And again, this is where the Drosophila model helps us to be able to express a protein, um, which will be a reporter for the ATP in the nerve terminals and allow us to measure that, um, that variable. The, ATP. the strategy for that is, is just to, to make an ATPase that, that reports its activity or something like that. Uh, sure. Well, there's a number of strategies. Uh, the simplest strategy that we're adopting at the moment is just to express um, one of these new luciferases inside the cytosol. And there's a couple of mutants which supposedly have a something like a 20 to 30-fold yield over the old um, firefly luciferase. I mean, that's one strategy, that, strategy. That's a fairly direct one. The only problem with that is that you have to get in a cofactor such as um, D-luciferin. And sometimes... It can be difficult to get that into the nerve terminal as well. I wish I knew how to code um, D-luciferin in cDNA, but I don't. Um, and I'm not sure that that's going to be uh, possible. But there are other strategies. And um, one of those, uh, I mean, I think you mentioned or, or were 
uh, implying uh, one where you might get a change in a conformation of the molecule, which would be read out in a change of fluorescence. That is a change of conformation that comes from binding of the ATP. And you could think of a, a number of those molecules, such as, um, well, the, um, the potassium channel, say, uh, binding ATP, or something like uh, AMP kinase binding AMP, um, as giving a readout or a, a readout proportional to the ATP levels in the cytosol. So the strategy for thinking about these kinds of things is to, say, uh, take an already existing enzyme and think, how can sure. I leverage that? I guess at some point people will think, uh, in, in terms of littler motifs, like maybe I could just get an ATP binding site off of this protein, and then a... Yeah, uh, yeah. But is, have we got to that point? We have, yeah. Um, you take what you think you can actually use. Um, there's a nice example of where uh, a laboratory in Japan... Um, I think six years ago now, what they did was they took the first uh, four transmembrane domains of the uh, of a voltage-sensitive potassium channel and at the end of the fourth domain, just before you uh, had the two domains for the pore for the channel, they coupled a cyan fluorescent protein and a yellow fluorescent protein. So allowing them to transduce the change of potential across the membrane into torque in the fourth transmembrane domain, which usually senses voltage, convert that torque into a change in um, the disposition of the cyan relative to the yellow and give a fret signal. So there you have a, a fret reporter for voltage across the membrane. So they took part of a potassium channel and used it, turned that into a voltage reporter. So yeah, anything... You want to report if you can find something which um, which transduces that signal into either fluorescence or bioluminescence. Sure, it's fair game in this system. I, I have a question. I mean, in terms of how, what is the uh, role of um, of mitochondria in like the nervous system, right? Um, so it, it seems that from the, this perspective that you come from, I mean, uh, besides producing ATP, it can be like some kind of a buffer for calcium, and that might affect, and depending on the size of the terminal, either on the presynaptic side or the postsynaptic side, um, it will have a, a larger or, or minor uh, effect on the amount of how fast calcium is going to be removed yeah. from the terminal. So I, I, I wonder if you could speculate a little bit on uh, why not, right? <laughs> on, on, on how this will fit in terms of uh, uh, how a synapse works. Right. Well, I mean, in the, in the simplest um, take on this, I think of the mitochondrion as being something that slows down the passage of calcium through the nerve terminal. Uh, it gives a sort of calcium memory to the nerve terminal in sequestering calcium during nerve activity and slowly releasing it afterwards it's usually it's really changed the time course of that calcium that's available to the nerve terminal and of course any calcium released after nerve activity even if it's slowly um, has the potential to potentiate uh, any following neurotransmission that occurs and I think the first point that you're making in that question whether or not uh, mitochondria might specifically play a role as buffers, I think there is a good example where they play a role as, uh, I think they call it a firewall. And 
that is you have a whole layer of mitochondria um, and this isn't in neurons but it's another cell type where a whole layer of um, <clears throat> excuse me a whole layer of mitochondria actually restrict the diffusion of calcium from one end of the cell to another so they really do um, they really can change your calcium environment it brings up the issue of mitochondrial distribution in cells. Mitochondria have to get around in the cell, and there are these fantastic films of cells and culture and the mitochondria moving around and going to various places, and they look like they're... they they look like little creatures inside the cell that know where they're going and are going places. What determines where the mitochondria go? Are they... Are they just crawling around at random, or are they targeted and um, well, that's, that's a terrific question, specifically in the nervous system, because here you have these long polar neurons. For example, if you have a motor neuron that extends from the spinal cord out to your big toe, you can imagine that might be a meter long. So how do the mitochondria get from the cell soma out to... Uh, these nerve terminals. Well, it's all by microtubule mediated transport. So you have uh, plus N directed microtubule motors such as kinesin, which couple onto these mitochondria and take them out on these tracks at quite a fast rate right out to the nerve terminals. And of course, they also do the return trip as well, and they do that um, by dynein mediated transport along these microtubules. But as for the question of what determines their distribution, a lot of people are working on that at the moment, and we certainly see them concentrated in the nerve terminals, and we believe that one of the reasons for that is that's where the big energy demand is. That's where the calcium's coming in in, in, uh, in a high volume, and so calcium has to be uh, extruded as well, and that's a, that requires quite a lot of energy. But also, of course, neurotransmission. You have to, uh, to synthesise neurotransmitters. You have to package them into synaptic vesicles. And then you have to recycle the materials after neurotransmission. Uh, and all of that's a, an expensive, energy-demanding process. So, yeah, the issue of mitochondrial transport around a, a polarised neuron um, is a big issue. And if you weren't able to do that efficiently, I'm, I'm quite sure that the nervous system couldn't work in, in any way that it has been shown to work now in large multicellular organisms. Are there any experiments in which you take a fiber, uh, an axon, and then selectively stimulate different parts? Sure. And then see, and then track all, I mean, you can, it seems that you can color code everything, right? So you color code the cytosol, and then color code the mitochondria. You choose a button that you believe is a synapse, the, and stimulate that, that synapse somehow, right? See if the mitochondria will come to yeah, where they're needed. Yeah, feed the, the calcium. That's right. I'm pretty sure... Or the other way, right? You shut down the synapse. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure they've done that with uh, growth hormone-coated beads and put it up against axons. And they've seen that mitochondria like to con- congregate there. But I think you're uh, asking a more specific question about whether or not local calcium influx, is that what you mean? Yeah, I guess if you can somehow, I mean, uh, stimulate only one synapse along that axon, yeah. right, uh, you will get influx of calcium, sure. uh, and then that will call some kind of second messenger thing that will bring the, the mitochondria that is neighboring uh, the yeah. silent synapses I, I there. I think mitochondria are very effective at getting to wherever 
the um, energy demand occurs, right. and but what signals are downstream of a lack of ATP, reduction of ATP, whether it's um, uh, an elevation in calcium in that level indicating that there's not enough ATP to... Well, it could be many things, right? You could think about a... Uh, 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 a messenger, ATP ratio, just a messenger from the postsynaptic side, right? A backpropagating messenger. Postsynaptic right? side. Yeah, yes. yeah, there, there is a postsynaptic <laughs> side, you know. It's like <laughs> um... um there's life on the other side of the cleft. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, you can have some kind of like an NO messenger, volumetric messenger that yeah. triggers um, some substrate in the presynaptic side and so on. Anyway, it's just yeah. heavy speculation. Yeah, what gets them to a synapse, I don't know, but you do know that at a synapse, of course, you're always going to have a postsynaptic partner. So it could just as well be the postsynaptic cell sending a signal rather than anything to do with uh, calcium influx at that particular point in the presynaptic cell. Yeah, it could be any range of, you know, whether it's uh, macromolecular structures across the synapse, whether it's morphogens diffusing. Um, there's many different ways. Endocannabinoids, I don't know. It seems like uh, there's countless possibilities and certainly uh, too many for me to chase down. <laughs> right. In the, you mentioned the excitement about neurodegeneration, yeah. and the excitement about neurodegeneration ripples out and affects synaptic transmission and all sorts of other things. But there's a there there's a literature on mitochondria that are specifically going wild, right? They're sort of yeah. breaking their down their they release their calcium, their membrane potential breaks down, and that seems somehow related to mitochondrial uh, fission and the number yeah. of mitochondria that are in this cell. And all of that's another world of mitochondria, you know, beyond what we've been yeah. thinking about. Oh. Right, which is my next question. Ah, oh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I... I just, just to comment on that, you're right. Uh, mitochondria are highly dynamic in that they um, break apart and they join up all the time. There are specific proteins for that. Uh, usually you don't want a mitochondrion breaking apart in an uncontrolled manner because the cytochrome C, which is held in between the two membranes, that, um, that will, uh, once it gets out into the cytosol, um, feed into the apoptotic pathway and you have a, a dead cell um, very soon after that. Um, and it seems like there's a number of different ways that mitochondria can be involved in the death of a cell. Another way is necrosis. If you have a, a lack of ATP, a lack of an ability to pump calcium out of the cytosol, you'll get um, activation of calcium-dependent hydrolases in the uh, cytosol, and that's a, a quick route to necrosis and death of the cell as well. So, so mitochondria are really conserved across species and across evolution. Um, what what role do the reactive oxidative species play in? I mean, other than are they just a byproduct? Is there is there any sort of downstream? Is there anything good that they? Like, There's got to be some sure. yeah. yeah. <laughs> molecule. Is, is it just garbage? Yeah, our reactive oxygen species just garbage um, pushed overboard by the mitochondria. I, I don't think they are. Um, and one of the reasons for this is because of the, um, and, and I cited again as a, another good example, uh, Mark Shapiro and um, 
David Jaffe um, here at the UT, uh, University of Texas, San Antonio. They did a study where they looked at the levels of hydrogen peroxide um, in neurons and how they influence the KCMQ channels. And hydrogen peroxide is uh, the product of um, superoxide acting on, sorry, superoxide dismutase acting on superoxide. And I think there's a good reason to believe that these uh, reactive oxygen species probably have a number of legitimate physiological functions. So I, by no means do I think that they're just a waste product that have to be got rid of or dealt with. I, I do think that they're important in, um, in feeding back in many different ways. So that means there's a whole myriad of, of messenger proteins, exactly. sort of every one of those. I mean, the reason people say reactive oxygen species is because they don't want to enumerate the huge long list yeah. of these. There's a lot of them. And maybe every single one of them has a complex function to be discovered. Well, we know that they've been dealt with. I mean, they've been dealt with to the extent that you still have physiological function in, in the presence of mitochondrion and its, and its metabolites, so to speak. Um, just how the whole thing is integrated, the whole uh, mitochondrial physiology fits in with um, the cell, uh, physiology of, of the cell as a whole, um, how that's all integrated, I don't know. And I, I think to understand that you, well... It all depends on your take of what a mitochondrion is, whether it's an endosymbiont, uh, whether it's a, a legitimate organelle that's um, evolved however other organelles have evolved. I don't know. It's um, something that I, I don't feel like I'm qualified to talk on. It's, uh, but it's, it's, it's fascinating how this, such a complex organelle, so important for the higher respiratory rates of um, multicellular organisms, how how they're being able to um, or just contribute to the overall function of the organism. Um, yeah, whatever view you take of their origin. Gee, I didn't really understand that there was a controversy about that. I always thought they were endosymbionts. Well, yes, but that's the standard. That that is that is the standard, but um, it's it's also a fairly. Um, far-fetched idea that the whole thing um, came together like that, that you could have a bacterium, that you could have a, uh, a vacuole that uh, enclosed that bacterium, and now you have a domesticated little powerhouse, a domesticated organelle in the cell. Um, the only reason I'm talking about it is as if it's uh, controversial is simply because it's such a, it seems such a far-fetched yes. thing to have happened, doesn't it? <laughs> And very good, I'd say. I mean, that's what it was. It was a good thing. Well, thank you for being with us. This has been great. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you.